So our, our guest speaker today, David Curry. David is the president of Open Doors, a, a group that works with the persecuted church and publishes that um, watch list, world watch list that you have. He's traveled throughout Asia, Africa, and the Middle East to meet with victims of religious oppression and hear their stories. He's appeared on CNN, Fox News, Christian Broadcasting Network, as well as being a contributor to Christianity Today and other publications. Would you guys give a warm welcome to David Curry? Thank you, John. So appreciate it. What an honor to be here today. I'm from the Northwest. Now, don't hold it against me. I'm from Tacoma originally, but you know. Uh, but uh, now I live in Southern California. Now you're really going to hold it against me. Uh, it's an honor to be here. I, I feel like I have friends already in this, in this church, even though this is my first time, because we have partners here. Uh, the, the Bible translation pro, uh, uh, project you've been doing uh, for the Tibetan people, Open Doors believes in that too. And I met John uh, a little earlier, but we have mutual friends, and we, we're, we're a part of that. You see, when the, the body of Christ works together for missions and for the persecuted church, we, we, there, are, there aren't boundaries. We have to all kind of throw in together. I believe that. Do you believe that? Uh, across all kinds of different divisions that we have amongst ourselves, we've got to be one body, one church, every church, every Sunday, praying, lifting up the persecuted church, because there's an opposition to the name of Jesus like there hasn't been in the modern age. And what you see in front of you, you here today with this, uh, you've opened up to the book, you saw the list, the World Watch List, that's our research. It's the, it's the grassroots research that the U.S. government, the State Department, uh, I'm going to be on Thursday meeting with the Secretary of State to talk about some of these issues with the uh, leader of the, the House, uh, Republican leader on Thursday to talk about these issues. That's how important this list is. Uh, people uh, pay attention to it because it shows what's happening, the, the trends, the movements. And uh, there's nothing you can do this morning for the persecuted church and for missions that does not, that does not bear fruit. Everything you do bears fruit. This project in Tibet is going to bear tremendous fruit. Uh, I have another partner here, CMA. Would, I, I hate to embarrass CMA guys because they're usually very tough and they would beat you up. No, they won't. Uh, but my Christian Motorcycle Association, at least ha raise your hand. I, uh, so this group has been supporting Open Doors. What Open Doors does, we are a covert ministry that goes, we started in the Soviet Union 70 years ago. Now we're in North Korea, Somalia, all the places you see on this list, supporting covert uh, distribution of Bibles, uh, training of pastors, emergency relief to Jesus, people who are oppressed or persecuted for their faith. And from the very beginning, these renegades, bikers, have been our number one supporters. Can you believe that? So it's like renegades supporting renegades. It's, kind of, it's quite an interesting group. And I'm a member, I'm a member. So there are many weekends of the year you'll see me with a motorcycle vest and on a bike and taking part of CMA. Uh, I wanna encourage you to do a few things. Uh, whatever God has called you to do to help with missions today, thank you, it will, it will bear fruit. But I wanna ask everybody, based on this scripture that, that, that our ministry is founded on in Hebrews 13, maybe you could bring that up. This is the New, uh, new King James. Let brotherly love continue. 
Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners. Now it's talking about prisoners of Jesus. Other translations say, uh, say it uh, in a different way, but it's the same idea. Remember the prisoners who, who are in chains for the name of Jesus as if you were chained with them. In some translations it says, as if, as if it were your own family, as if it were your own self. Those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are part of the body. This idea that we are part of the body, I think it's a universal calling. There are individual callings. You might be an evangelist. You might be called to this. You might be called to that. But it's a universal calling that we pray for those who are persecuted for the name of Jesus. And we have this prayer app. It's just prayer. And it's prayer in the voice of, of the persecuted themselves. And many times we try to have recordings and so forth. I want to encourage everybody to download this. You're not, we don't ask you to do anything but pray. But I want to see everybody praying for the persecuted church because nothing you do in the name of Jesus for the persecuted and for mission goes without bearing fruit. So I only have a few minutes. I thought I would just jump into this list and tell you some stories uh, of how God is working. Uh, number one on our list is Afghanistan. I'll talk, maybe I should talk about that. The, the 50th on the list is Malaysia. Malaysia, I've been to Malaysia, been to Kuala Lumpur, very sophisticated city, very cosmopolitan. It's got one, it's got one of the tallest buildings in the world. I've been to the top of it. Our team there is, uh, was run by a man named Raymond Koh. K-O-H, say K-O-H. Uh, when you go home, I want you to Google this uh, or, or, or search it on YouTube, and you'll see a video of Raymond. On February 13th of 2017, Raymond, who had run all manner of ministries to help uh, Islamic uh, believers uh, come to know Jesus in Malaysia, on February 13th of 2017, he was driving to our office. And uh, he was surrounded, cars left, right, front, center. They blocked him in, motorcycles trailing in behind, just like a movie, just like a Jason Bourne movie. They snatched him out of the car, and we've never seen him again. The gospel is oppressed. This is the 50th country on our list. It means that's e much, much easier, although difficult, than it is in Afghanistan. Because you can be a Jesus person there, you, but, but you can't, you can't change your faith. You can't have uh, be, been a Muslim and become a Christian. I mean, that's the easiest spot on our list. He's been gone. We presume dead. You can see it happen. The, uh, uh, his uh, wife and son, who are dear friends, they went door to door trying to say, did you see anything? Did you see anything? And they collected all the CCTV cameras on the different houses, and you could see him be kidnapped for the name of Jesus. What was he doing wrong? He was sharing Jesus with HIV, uh, Islamic believers who are, have HIV positive. He had a drug program in Malaysia. He was just lifting up the name of Jesus, salt and light. The, the ironic thing is, ever since he was kidnapped, the, it's been a massive story all over the front page news of Malaysia. It's changing that country. So even when they're trying to hold you, this is what I mean, everything you do for the name of Jesus for missions and otherwise, has bears fruit. I believe that. Do you believe that? 
uh, it, that, that looks like a loss, but actually God's making it a victory. His family, he was the leader of that family. I mean, everything sort of revolved around him. And now his two daughters, his son, and his wife are all like public speakers. They're out there. They're, they're, they're arguing their case in front of the government. And now there's, there was one leader in that family, and now there's four leaders in that family. I mean, on every level, it happens like that. And if it's so positive, you must be saying to me, David, if it's such a positive thing, then why do we not believe that persecution happens? Because when we surveyed uh, uh, believers, we found that I think only 40% of American Christians, when asked if they believed that Christian persecution was a problem, said, yeah, we think it's a problem. That's Jesus, people. They don't know what this list represents. There's 360 million people who live under severe oppression. There's 100 million of them in China who are monitored and tracked with cameras and, and all manner of technical surveillance because they're followers of Jesus. And then they lose their jobs or their kids don't go to college if they, you know, if they are, are, are ad, you know, adherents, so to speak. They don't mind if you just call yourself a Christian in China. It's just when you start to live it, that's the problem. Not unlike here, actually, <laughs> in some ways. So, if it's such a good thing uh, that, that God is doing things in the midst of it, why don't we believe it? I think, I have a theory, and that theory is it's because we want what we want, what I want, what you want, is good feelings, positive vibes. Uh, what, what is another term my kids would use? Uh, something, something where it's like paradise, Heaven on earth would be great. I, I read a story one time, one of my favorite authors. Uh, he's a nonfiction author, and I got a chance to meet him one time. But he wrote this great article on the 27. There are 27 cities in the U.S. called Paradise. And he decided that he would go to each and every one of them to find out if it was actually <laughs> heaven on earth. And he made the mistake. At, he, he started out, he used, he's from the U.K., and he decided that he, the first one he would go to would be in Florida, mistake number one. He went, it's just outside Orlando. Okay, you know where this is going, don't you? Uh, it, it's not paradise in Orlando. In fact, this is like this little retirement community outside of Orlando called Paradise, Florida. And, and it's, it's full of folks that are literally in heaven's waiting room. Okay, so they're ready to go to paradise, but this is not paradise. Then they went up to, uh, I think, uh, the northeast, I think somewhere in Pennsylvania, not paradise. He said the closest they got was uh, this little place in Kansas called Paradise, Kansas. And when he went to the post office, he asked them, you know, like, how was this city formed? Tell me about it. And uh, they said, well, our founders are still alive, John and Mary Angel. So he literally had dessert with the angels in paradise. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't get better than that. But even that wasn't it, right? There's four places. I looked this up. There may be more, but let's, this is what the, the interweb spoke to me about. There are four places on earth named hell, and one of them is in Michigan. Interesting, huh? Anybody here from Michigan? I guess not. Well, I have a team member on Michi from Michigan. I said, well, tell me about hell, Michigan, and I guess it is kind of cold there. Uh, we want that. We want comfort. We want to feel good. 
we don't want to get close to this. So why am I asking you to pray? Why am I telling you that there are, there are some of you in this place that are called to a life of being opposed for the name of Jesus and you should embrace it? Because your spiritual life depends on getting out of your comfort zone and getting closer to Jesus no matter what the cost. He's asked us to do that, to count the cost. So when I say download the, the app, pray, give, go, all of these sorts of things, it's not that I'm asking you to do something that's easy, uh, but I am asking you to do something that's important. I think of my brother Raymond, who, uh, you know, I, I love deeply, and I wish he was here I, for his wife's sake, for his kid's sake, and not... I mean, we don't really know where he's at, but I mean, let's face it, it's, he disappeared in 2017. He's, he's most likely with Jesus. And I still argue his case. I went to the UN and tried to draw attention to put pressure on the government, all that sort of stuff. Uh, but his life is not in vain. Uh, his life is changing the country of Malaysia. Let me jump in here uh, with Afghanistan. Um, Afghanistan is an interesting country. It's a, number one on our list this year. We, we, we have a new list coming out in January. Afghanistan uh, is, was always, 70% of the country was run by the Taliban, the rural areas, even before the whole thing happened a year ago, where the whole government collapsed in, in Kabul and and it's like, you know, did, does God even care about Afghanistan? It's an interesting question. I mean, you look at all the stuff going on there. In, uh, there's only one church that I know of that existed in Afghanistan. It was started by a man uh, named Christy Wilson. He's passed on now. He was the son of a missionary in Pakistan. And he felt God impressing upon him that he should start a church in Afghanistan. Well, you can't start a church in Afghanistan. At that time, it was run by the king, but it was still Islamic. They, they had these rebel, Islamic rebels in the country, and he was just impressed. So he, he got his doctorate, and he was a very educated man in Pakistan, spoke the language. So he decided he would go and teach at the University of Kabul and uh, start this little Bible study just with American expats, okay? He wasn't going to reach Afghanistani uh, folks. So he got some, uh, he had some connections with, at that time, President Eisenhower, and he was allowed to, to meet, and, and they just kept it down. It was just people who worked at the embassy or whatever. Well, he did that for 20 years. And uh, finally, he was allowed to build a church, and uh, so he built this church, and it, I think uh, it stood for about a year, and then I might get the dates slightly wrong, but I believe it was July 17th of 1973, it was torn down. And it was torn down because the king, who was already under pressure from what would you know, be, become the Taliban, uh, had heard that even though they were just talking to American missionaries, that there was an underground church. 
that people, whenever you bring up the name of Jesus, wherever, Jesus does very well everywhere, by the, by the way. I say that because you might think like, oh, wow, it's persec- there's persecution in Afghanistan. When you talk about Jesus in Afghanistan, people want to know. This is way before some of your time, but you remember the E.F. Hutton commercials, right? Like when people start talking about their what? Uh, so he had heard there was an underground church. He said, you know, we're going to tear, tear this down. And Christy Wilson had this impression. He said, if you tear this down, Cain, if you tear this church down, you will lose your kingdom. He had this impression. So on July 17th, 1973, they tore it down. And that very night, the Taliban came in and took over and dethroned the king. That, that same night, that same night. Interestingly, they, they actually, they tore the whole church down and they dug up the foundation because they had heard there was an underground church. They literally thought it was. So I guess the church is over. It's done. No church. But our founder... Uh, came over the hill from Pakistan through the mountains, all of those mountains you hear about when we were tracking bin Laden, came over with some Jesus people and came in to Kabul. There is a strong church in Kabul. Now, much of it, it's a small church, but it's a strong church. Much of it is on the run. All of it's on the run. Uh, Some of it has left the country. We think there's still about 10,000 Jesus people there. We have a good-sized team there in Afghanistan. And the leader of it is like this Apostle Paul character who you would just be proud to call your your brother. You know? That's Afghanistan. Everything you do for Jesus. That church was torn down in 1973. The gospel goes forward. I have a couple minutes. I just want, let me tell you one more story. China is number 17. China, I'm concerned about China because they're so sophisticated. They're using a social score to track Christian behavior. If you bring your kids who are under the age of 18 to church, that goes against your social score. You're not allowed to to evangelize your kids. And they will not be able to go to the university of their choice. You might lose your job. You're put on a no-fly list, believe it or not if your score gets too low because of your church attendance. So, it's a problem. Uh, I was talking with uh, one of our guys. The way we work is covert, so we will, we have companies. Uh, We started, Brother Andrew, when he started it, we we did uh, refrigerators into the Soviet Union and we stuffed the walls with Bibles. Now we do it in different ways. But uh, at, in the 90s, when we started, we, at one point we brought in a million Bibles into China in one night in the late 80s. And in the 90s, the gentleman who ran our communications in China worked, actually worked for Time Magazine. And that was how he was able to get in and do our work, was he was a reporter. But he was a committed to Jesus. He still works for us today. And... Uh, I was talking to him, and he was uh, uh, with our team not too long ago, and he told me this story, and uh, I, I've, I've validated it. It's a true story. Uh, 
he said when he was there, there was a, one of the largest governments, uh, uh, states in China, had about 180 million people in this state. They had, the, the Congress of that state, or the legislature, had passed a law saying it was absolutely against the law, super punishment if you go to church. But the governor himself reversed it. This is in the 90s, early 90s. And uh, so Ron uh, said to his publisher in time, he said, this is an interesting story. Why don't you let me go cover it? So he went and he talked to the, gov the governor. And he said at that time, it was the most powerful person I'd ever met. Had his total control over the lives of all these Chinese citizens. He said, I went to him and I said, sir, why did you let, uh, why did you overturn this law? Are you a Christian? He said, no, I'm not a Christian. I've committed communists. What's the story? He said, when I was a young man, I went to Oxford for graduate school. I was there for three years. I spent the entire three years just in school and never interacted. I thought the British people were class conscious. They were snooty. Any Brits here? Okay, let's face it. That's true. Okay. Uh, he said, but it, it validated everything I believed uh, about my communist system. But as I was three weeks from leaving, I decided I should at least go to a church once. So he uh, decided he would go to church, and as he went to church, here was this Mr. and Mrs. Smythe met him at the door. And they said, hey, where are you from? Tell us your story. Hey, he tells them the story. I'm here. I got three weeks ago. They said, oh, would you come back next week, and we'll have you over for lunch. So he comes back. He's got two weeks to go. He comes in, Mr. and Mrs. Smythe. They had a layout for this guy. I mean, everything that you would want for a big lunch after, after church in, in the UK, he had a great time. She, they said, look, you got one more week. Come back next week. So he comes back next week, and uh, the whole church had a party for him. Whole church. And uh, the guy said, now I never became a Christian, but I know to myself to this day that if that's what Jesus people we need more of them in China. Nothing you do for missions for the persecuted church goes without impact. Nothing. Ron decided, he asked his editor, this is interesting, let me go track down the Smize. So he went to Leeds, went to the church. Nobody remembered them. This was years later. And uh, he finally found the old vicar who was in a retirement home, and he went to the vicar and he said, Hey, do you know that? Remember the Smize? Yes, I do. Uh, she, uh, he ran a furniture store. Failure. Went into receivership, lost the business. She always wanted to have kids, never could. So they became greeters. <laughs> Can you believe it? So they became greeters. They decided they'd make it their. Their kids would be the people who walked in that door. She died believing she was a failure. That nothing she did mattered. But 180 million people because she was kind. 
I'm telling you, nothing, not the smallest seed, not the smallest seed done in Jesus' name goes without making an impact. So today, you guys who gave us $10,000 to help people who are persecuted, thank you, thank you. It's, it, it could be a thousand greats, 10,000, 100,000 great stories out of this. You will hear about it in heaven. And I want to say thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for caring about the persecuted. Would you pray? Would you do me? Raise your hand if you will pray for the persecuted church. Thank you. It makes a huge difference. These people, their lives are on the line. They go through stuff. If you're caught with the Bible and, and being a follower of Jesus in Afghanistan, there's no trial. You're not going to prison. You're just going to lose your life. I mean, this is heavy business. Pray for them, I pray. Would you? Bow your heads. I'll pray. I know there's another great speaker coming here. Jesus, I pray for this church. This is a missions church. It's a giving church. But sometimes you just don't want to think about the hard stuff. But we're going to think about it because it's going to make us better. It's going to make us stronger. And then when we take action, whether it's prayer or giving or loving somebody who walks in the door, in Jesus' name, it's going to have an impact. Bless the seed of this church. In your precious name, I pray. Amen. Thank you. John? Thanks, David. That was awesome. Appreciate that. Our next speaker, um, I've rubbed, rubbed shoulders with him over the last 10 or 15 years. He has been passionate for unreached people groups. He's pastored at Sunset Bible Church. He's now the regional director for Perspectives Northwest. He'll talk a little bit about that, I'm sure, but we love Perspectives. It's a college-level course that brings in speakers from all over. We're partnering with Grace Community Church in Auburn to see this happen in January. Would you guys welcome Tyler Pease? Thanks for being here. This is awesome. Well, good morning. So good to be here and to spend some time with you this morning. Um, up on the screen, I'll introduce my family to you. My, my wife, Karen, my daughter, Jilly. You'll get a chance to meet them today as well. We live down in the Tacoma area where we have opportunity to serve God. Uh, one of the ministries we're involved in is called Better English in Tacoma, which my wife runs. It's a multi-church ministry that is uh, reaching international friends through English classes, discovery Bible studies. It's truly multi-church, and we have the opportunity to reach over 27 different countries through that program. I also have the privilege of serving as the regional director of Perspectives in the Northwestern United States, and I'll share more about that ministry with you at the end, but I really want to just get right into our time in God's Word this morning, and, and really what my focus is is to... to interact with this question is, how does the Bible inform our response to persecution? We've had a wonderful word from David. I'm so thankful for that. I agree with everything that he said about what we do will bear fruit. But how do we respond to it from a biblical standpoint? And really, my title slide gives away where I'm going, and that is we're going to see that God makes his power known through tribulation, through persecution, through suffering. 
And to get us started, I want to look at our verse today. This is a, the theme verse that Pastor John gave me and asked me to speak about, which is John 6, 33. It says this, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. And he says, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Now, as we look at that verse, there's a number of things there that just don't seem to really mesh. We're told to have peace and be of good cheer, and yet we're told we're going to have tribulation. And we're told we're going to have tribulation in this world, and yet Jesus is saying, I've overcome the world. So how do we reconcile those things? And, And what I want us to see today, and what Jesus is doing, is... He is sending his disciples on a mission, and how we understand our mission is going to radically change how we respond to persecution in this world. And it's going to radically change how we respond to our brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world. And I want you to see this today. This is really where I'm going, is I want you to see that rather than persecution being um, some sort of problem that Jesus is kind of scratching his head saying, boy, what do we do about this? We're going to see today that persecution is actually one of Jesus's greatest tools for expanding his kingdom into places in this world where the name of Christ is not yet known. In fact, Jesus's sovereignty is so great that he's even able to take evil and persecution and use it for his purposes. So, And in John 16, 33, Jesus isn't saying this as some sort of like pessimistic warning of, oh, sorry guys, the world's going to kind of stink. No, he's getting them ready for this mission that he's starting them on. And I want to dig in a little bit to the context of this verse, because you can see there he says, these things I have spoken to you. What things? Well, to see what things he's spoken, we kind of have to go back and we find ourselves John 15, 26 through 27. He's, he's starting to teach his disciples a number of things. He's preparing them. And he says this, but when the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. It's very similar to what Jesus says in Acts 1.8 about the Holy Spirit coming. And, and one of the things the Holy Spirit's going to do is it's, he's going to empower God's people to be witnesses for Jesus Christ. Now, this is the beginning of what Jesus is, uh, is teaching, but he goes on through the entirety of John 16, and he begins preparing his disciples for what the world's going to look at like in, in a very short time. This will be a time when Jesus is no longer with them. This will be a time where they do experience persecution and suffering, tribulation. But it will be a time when they are empowered by the Holy Spirit to do what they're being called to do. And why is Jesus telling them all these things, both this and and John 16, 33? Well, he wants them to have peace and cheer when persecution comes, because rather than thinking, oh no, persecution is here, did Jesus forget about me? Rather, they'd say, this is exactly what he has prepared me for. And I really love the flow of this section of John. Uh, We have Jesus kind of sharing what this mission is going to look like, and then right away, what Jesus does is he prays for his disciples. We come to John 17. After telling them about the tribulation coming, he prays for them. And I want you to notice one section in this as he's praying for them. He says this, I have given them your word, 
And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they may also be sanctified by the truth. In other words, Jesus is saying, Father, I'm sending them into the world. Don't take them out of the world. Rather, protect them and sanctify them just as, just as you have sanctified me, and, and I'm sending them just as you have sent me. And with this preparation in place, we come to John 20, 21, which is basically the Great Commission in John. Jesus said to them again, peace to you as the Father has sent me, I also send you. So we have this incredible flow here. Jesus warns his followers, he prays for his followers, and now he sends his followers. And so our first takeaway I want us to see today is to know that tribulation and persecution is part of Jesus' plan. But I want us to think about why. why. Why does Jesus use persecution as part of his plan? We're going to think about that together. And here's the, the general gist of it, and we'll unpack this a little bit, is that when it comes to persecution, a watching world comes face to face with Jesus' love for them and with Jesus' greatest victory and demonstration of his power. Let's think about this. There was a a pastor, a very famous pastor, uh, named Joseph Song. He was a pastor in communist Romania. And he was a pastor who um, spent a number of times being arrested. He was beaten in horrific ways. There were several moments in his life where he came to a point where he didn't think he was going to survive. And this experience that he had caused him to really think about the theology of suffering. And he he was thinking about, God, why do you let some of your children be persecuted? And God, why do you let some of your children be martyred, dying for the name of Jesus? And as he pondered these things, this is where he came to as he thought about that question of martyrdom. Joseph Song said this, he said, martyrdom has the power of revealing the love of God to those in darkness. And herein lies its power to convince and to persuade. People see the love of God in the death of the martyr and are compelled to believe in God's love and sacrifice for them. That's a powerful statement. And here's how I've come to understand this, this quote of Joseph Song's. is in general, people have a very hard time believing that God loves them or even likes them for that matter. You know, really, as we look at the world, the world offers really two ways of living. There'd be what we'd call the religious way, that is, through all of my human effort and tireless endeavor, trying to make myself right before whatever God I believe in, whether it's a a personal God, or whether it's a number of gods, or whether it's some impersonal force. So there's a religious way. Or there's an irreligious way, which basically just says, I don't care about God, I'll live however I want. And that's really what the world offers. But the Bible is unique in offering another way that is based on God saying, I love you, and I want to be your ally. I'm your ally. I want you to be my children. Now, for a world that finds that very hard to believe, how does God prove his goodwill towards us? Well, he sent his son God the Son took on the fullness of humanity. 
He entered into our messy and broken world, and he willingly died on a cross on our behalf. Friends, this is the most powerful demonstration of God's love for us. This is the most powerful demonstration of God's goodwill towards us. Emmanuel, God with us. That is unique in the world. Our God, the God of the Bible, is the only one who has a message like that. But, but think about this. If you are living within a culture where Christ has yet to be known, and this idea of a God loving you is very hard to accept, and you hear about Jesus, it, still that doesn't really click. And oftentimes what's needed for you to believe this message about Jesus is for God to send somebody who's one of your culture who willingly suffers or dies in the name of Jesus for this to make sense. And this is what God means by us being witnesses. Sometimes we think about this idea of being a witness and we think about it in terms of like sharing some information. But the Bible has a very different idea of what being a witness is. In a biblical sense, a witness is somebody whose life actually represents Jesus in the flesh. And when it comes to breaking into new cultures, the martyr who dies still loving their murderer, or the persecuted Christian who doesn't retaliate in anger and spite, is an incredibly powerful message, and, and in their in their life, they become a living reenactment of Jesus' own suffering and sacrifice for us. See, suffering is often what's required for a culture to believe the good news of the gospel and to believe God's goodwill towards them. And the Apostle Paul knew this. Uh, he reflected on the suffering that Jesus called him to. And he says this in Colossians 1.24. This is a really challenging verse for us, but... Paul says this, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what's lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now, what in the world is Paul talking about there? That he's filling up in, in his own flesh what's lacking in the afflictions of Jesus. Like, what, is, what do you mean, Paul? What's lacking in the afflictions of Jesus? Well, here's the thing. Paul was not saying that there was anything lacking in what Jesus did on the cross when it comes to his ability to save you and me. But what Paul is speaking towards is this. He knew that for the mission of Jesus to continue, to be fulfilled, there was still suffering left to be endured. For this message of the gospel to, to go to all the nations, because Jesus said, make disciples of all nations, there would be suffering to be done. Paul was called to this, and we are. So suffering's required for a world to understand that God actually loves them. But that's not the only reason God uses suffering. Suffering is also God's greatest demonstration of his power. And I want us to think about this a little bit. What do I mean? Well, sometimes I think we often look at miraculous things uh, and, and signs and wonders, things like that. And we think, wow, that's where God really shows his power. And of course, he does show his power in those ways. But sometimes we might find ourselves thinking, you know, if God just did more miraculous things, the whole world would turn to him. You know, not so much. The Bible is full of stories of people who saw miraculous things and very quickly turned their back on God. Now think about the children of Israel coming out of slavery in Egypt. 
the amazing things they saw, how long did it take them to turn their backs on God? It was like right away, right? Now, God's greatest demonstration of his power is actually found in the lives of ordinary believers, weak, easily broken people who respond to suffering and persecution in ways that make no sense to a watching world. Let me read a part of a story, tell a story to you that I think really um, helps with this. This is a story that Paul Hybert uh, told uh, from his life. Paul Hybert, before his death in 2007, was the director of missions at uh, the Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Chicago. And he tells a story of a time when he was a missionary in India. And he was teaching class one day, and a village pastor that he worked with came in looking very upset. So he kind of left his students working on their stuff, and he went to check on this guy whose name was Yalela. He says, Yalela, what's going on? And Yalela told him about how smallpox had come to their village, and it was just devastating the village. And Western medicine hadn't helped, so the village elders had turned to a witch doctor, and they were now working on this whole sacrifice ceremony thing. And this created a big conflict because the Christians in that village would not participate. And because they wouldn't participate, they began to be persecuted, and they were cut off from the village well, cut off from buying food. And and so it was a mess. But the the bigger issue on Yalela's mind was now one of the Christian girls had smallpox, and she was very sick. So he came and asked this this missionary, would you please pray for this girl that she would get better? And this is what Hybert says. He said, Shalala wanted me to pray with him for God's healing. And as I knelt, my mind was in turmoil. I had learned to pray as a child. I'd studied prayer in seminary. I prayed it as a pastor. I preached it as a pastor. But now I was to pray for a sick child as the village watched to see if the Christian God was able to heal. Can you feel the anguish that he's going through? Now, in this moment, what would you want God to do? Heal the girl, right? That'd be a pretty amazing demonstration of God's power. Well, this is what happens. He says this, a week after our prayer meeting, Yalela returned to say that the child had died. I felt thoroughly defeated. Who was I to be a missionary if I could not pray for healing and receive a positive answer? There's that other sense of defeat he had. But something very surprising happened to him. After a few weeks, Yalela showed up again. He said, a few weeks later, Yalela returned with a sense of triumph. How can you be so happy after the child died, I asked. Yalela said this, the village would have acknowledged the power of, of our God had he healed the child, but they knew in the end she would have to die. But when they saw in the funeral our hope of resurrection and reunion in heaven, they saw an even greater victory over death itself. And they have begun to ask about the Christian way. Hybert says this, he says, I began to realize in a new way that true answers to prayers are those that bring the greatest glory to God, not those that satisfy my immediate desires. And my point in reading this is just to help us think, it would have been amazing if God healed the the girl, and certainly God could have healed the girl. And yet, even that watching village knew that eventually a healed girl would get sick and die someday. Death comes for all of us, eventually. And and this was a village with thousands of gods, and, and certainly a healing would have just been one more cool thing that some god did. But listen, a joyful response to death was something none of their gods offered. 
And the world around us today is enslaved to the fear of death. So when people see ordinary believers responding to death and suffering in a way that the world has no answer for, that becomes an incredibly powerful demonstration of what God has done to defeat sin and death. Ordinary people, not flashy people, not people who have it all together, but ordinary people suffering and responding in hope and joy. So with a general understanding, and certainly we could spend more time on this, but with a general understanding of why God calls his children to suffer, um, I want us to consider how we might respond to our persecuted brothers and sisters. And to do this, I'd like us to consider how we would respond to Jesus. I'm going to do a little mental exercise here, okay? I'm a, I'm a sci-fi guy. I like sci-fi, so sometimes I start thinking about weird things like time travel. I know some of you, that's the furthest thing of interest, and you're like, what? No, I don't. But, but it's okay. We can do this. So let's just imagine we invented a time machine, and we could travel back, okay? And we traveled back to that day when Jesus was being led to his crucifixion. And so there we are standing among the crowd, but the difference between us and the crowd is while all the crowd can see is this this weak man who's been beaten and brought to his greatest point of humility and, and vulnerability, we know what's actually going on here, that this is the king of kings. And what looks like total weakness to the world in the watching crowd is actually the greatest defeat of evil ever to occur. We are watching before our eyes the head of the serpent being crushed. Now, imagine a guard selected you out of a crowd because this weak, helpless, beaten man could no longer carry his cross. And so would, would you carry the cross? What would your attitude be? You're being asked to pick up the cross for your Savior. You're being invited to participate in his victory. Would you look at him and say, oh man, what a pitiful person. Yeah, good thing I'm here. Yeah, I kind of have it all together. Or would you say, you know, "Ah, this isn't for me. It's a little too messy for me. A little too complicated. No, of course not, right? I mean, we would have this sense of reverence. Would you not, you and I not jump at the idea of, I get to come alongside my Savior who is defeating sin and death? That, that a watching world has no idea what's going on, but we know what's occurring in this moment. Okay, let me be so bold as to connect this to suffering today. Because when, when brothers and sisters in Christ are called to suffer in the name of Jesus, and then we are called to come alongside them as, as David has challenged us this morning, it is not the haves coming to help the have-nots, It's not the strong helping the pitiful. No, it's merely those of us who are bonded in Christ being able to come alongside fellow brothers and sisters and to support those that God has chosen to demonstrate his love through, those that God has chosen to continue expanding his kingdom through, and we have an opportunity. Now, now here's the thing. I don't fully understand what God is doing in every instance of suffering. Sometimes we get to see what God is doing, and sometimes we don't. And we say, God, why did that happen? But even when we don't understand every single detail of what God's doing, we have the same behind-the-picture view of what's happening as when Jesus went up to Calvary. 
We know that God is at work today, and he is working to expand his kingdom and to bring the nations to him. See, the reality is right now, persecution has happened at an unprecedented rate. There are more people being persecuted today for the name of Jesus than any other time in all of history. But that's because Jesus is at work in an unprecedented way today. And he is growing his church in a way that's unprecedented in all of human history. And you and I get an opportunity to participate in that. So how do we we respond? Um, Just, you know, bringing it to a few things. Well, first of all, knowing what God is doing is not an invitation to treat persecution casually. You know, sometimes I hear Christians kind of saying, you know, tribulation and persecution is the best thing for the church. We need some persecution here. You know, far above my pay grade to ever wish that, right? So we don't wish tribulation on anyone. Also, we recognize the true anguish involved in persecution. This is more than any one of us can bear. And if not for the power of the Holy Spirit, none of us would be able to endure it. All right? So we, we need to take it seriously. So, so let me offer just two ways that we should be responding. First of all is by praying. You know, going back to John 17, Jesus warned them that persecution and tribulation was coming. What did he do right away? Jesus prayed. Why? Because prayer works. Prayer is how God functions. He calls us to pray. And so we need to be praying for our persecuted brothers and sisters. You know, if I had time, I'd love to go through Acts 4 and 5, where we see right away in the early church, persecution begins. Very first thing, they're being uh, harassed, they're being threatened, they're being arrested, they're being brought before rulers in a watching public, being put on public display. And, and the Holy Spirit empowers them to be the witnesses that Jesus wants. And what's interesting, as persecution continues, the believers pray. And you know what? They don't pray that persecution would stop. So in Acts 4, 29, this is what they pray. They say, now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. I love that. They say, grant to us boldness. And you know what happens in Acts? If you read the rest, that's what they do. They begin preaching the word boldly despite persecution. Our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world need us to be praying for them that they would have boldness in their testimony. All right. Second thing is, if possible, we are to rescue There's a lot I mean by that, but this could be providing relief. This could be advocating, helping in tangible ways. Now, you might say to me, man, Tyler, this doesn't make sense because if God is demonstrating his love and power through persecution, isn't it counterintuitive to try to rescue people from persecution? And again, that is one of those things that's far above my pay grade. You know, let God decide who he allows to remain in persecution and let him decide who he allows to be rescued. But... A really cool thing is this. It's not just how we endure persecution that speaks to a watching world, but how we care for our brothers and sisters in Christ also speaks to a watching world. You see, when Jesus prayed for his followers in in John 17, there's this really cool part in John 17 where he then turns and he begins praying for you. Did you know that? 
Check out John 17, 20, 21. He says, I do not pray for these alone, speaking of his disciples. He says, but also those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. Now, this prayer for unity that the world might believe, remember, is happening in the context of Jesus ascending his followers to be his witnesses into tribulation and persecution. And so this idea of unity that Jesus is praying for is in that context of persecution. And you know, the thing is, when, when we come alongside our Christian brothers and sisters, this speaks volumes to a watching world because this too doesn't make sense because the reality is when it comes to a brother of mine halfway across the world, there might be nothing tangible that we have in common other than our bond in Jesus Christ. In fact, that brother might come from a culture that's at odds with my own culture, perhaps a culture where they've mistreated us for generations. Maybe we've been in conflict for generations. And when the world sees me coming and sacrificially serving that brother, uh, the world doesn't have an answer for that. As much as the world likes to speak about unity, there's no unity apart from Christ. So in our, our caring for one another, we have an opportunity to also demonstrate God's truth to a watching world. Now, certainly more could be said today, but my goal was really this, that, that I want us to see that God's call to tribulation, to persecution, is not by accident. It's not because God's forgotten about us. It's not because Jesus' plans are being upset by Satan. It's because Jesus is at work. And whether we have the opportunity to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ or if we have the opportunity to rescue, both of those things allow us to participate in what God's doing to reveal himself to a watching world. And so I just want to encourage you in those ways today to not ignore our brothers and sisters in Christ, but to, to endeavor to pray for them and to be a part of their lives and, and to sacrificially use whatever God's giving you to care for them. Now, before I pray and step off, I just want to share very briefly about my ministry, and this will be very brief. Um, I work for Perspectives, and you know, essentially what I'm calling you to, do, to today is to be a global Christian. One of the best ways you can prepare yourself to be a global Christian is through the ministry of Perspectives. Um, perspectives itself is a globally focused discipleship ministry. Uh, that seeks to mobilize and awaken the body of Christ through education. Now, our primary tool for that is a 15-week study program that helps people understand what God's doing in the world. It's held in churches across the world. And there's a number of you, actually, in this church who've taken it. And you would agree with me, I'm sure, that it's a life-changing program. A uh, student recently described their experience of perspectives in this way. This is, the, this is the course designed for restless Christians who want to change the world. As Pastor John mentioned, Calvary Chapel South has hosted Perspectives many times in the past, and right now they're working with several churches in this area to see an ongoing offering of Perspectives each year rotating to a different church. This year in January, it will be at Grace Community Church in Auburn, and I really hope that you will stop by the table out there, find out about it, sharpen yourselves so that you can participate globally in a more strategic way. Of course, we would also love to meet you personally and give you our prayer card, but um, we hope to see you.
Stop by David's table before you stop at mine. That's the better one, okay? All right. Can I pray for us? And I'm sure we'll worship one more song, and here we go. God, I thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for this church. Thank you for their heart, for your global purposes, and this morning just to focus on what you are doing around the world. And God, we remember our brothers and sisters in Christ who, who today are suffering in ways that we might not even be able to comprehend. And God, we pray that you would empower them to the task that you have given them. God, we, we are so thankful that you've included us, that you are a God who says, I love you, I'm your ally, and you've demonstrated that to us in so many ways. God, the reality is the reason that we are here in this room today is because people went before us who suffered in the name of Jesus in our culture. And you are still at work in the world today. So help us, God. Help us not to do any of these things that we're called to in our strength, but only in your strength. We praise you and we lift this up. We pray this in the name of Jesus and through the Spirit. Amen.